You are listening to Studying Pixels, a procedural podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simont. I'm a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. I must admit up top that I do love screensavers. <laughs> Yay! What an amazing topic to address as a warm-up. <laughs> Exciting. Hold on to your seats, folks. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about screensavers. Just briefly. Just only briefly. I want to mention this for a reason. The thing is that when I was but a mere boy and... <laughs> I watched our old Windows computer in our living room. We only had one computer ah. in the house. And then mm -hmm. there would be this endless maze that would come on. I think on Windows 95, I think. Yeah, the pipes, right? Uh, there, were, there were pipes, but there was also this one with the bricks, like with brick walls. Oh, it was a like brick a, one. Yeah, like a yes. 3D labyrinth yeah, that yeah, you would yeah. go through. And, and I always thought, uh, that looks like an amazing video game. <laughs> 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 but whenever you touch it, It immediately crashes. <laughs> Terrible game. The, in <laughs> the ineffability of the maze game on Windows screensaver. Didn't every child at the time kind of think, I wish I could just play through this? I think, you know what that reminds me of? Uh, when you have a DVD menu and it just has, it goes to black and it is a screensaver and there's the DVD logo and it starts bouncing around the screen You always hoped as a kid that it would eventually perfectly hit the corner, but it never did. It never does. Mm. Never did. Yeah, that's <laughs> tough. To, but I, while I have such an affection for screensavers, I don't really like a lot of these default screensavers that you have on devices. Most of them are pretty boring, just some random shapeless thing mutating on your screen. And uh, <laughs> that's why I, I built my own I think a couple of years ago already, I had an idea. And that idea was, I'll put up like a, a vintage photo slideshow, mm. but not with photos of my loved ones. This might be very telling of my personality. <laughs> <laughs> When my, my screensaver comes on, it shows pictures of thinkers and scholars that have inspired me. Hmm. For example, when I read through a couple of books by Immanuel Kant, mm. I would then go out and look up his picture and drag it into that folder. When I read Judith Butler, and I thought, wow, this is really amazing, I put Judith Butler's picture in there. Yeah, that's a good way to kind of keep it in the forefront of your mind. I know, I know this about you. You also do this, not with screensavers, but with the current game you're playing. Don't you change the background of your, of your laptop? Yeah, of all my devices, actually. Oh, okay. At the moment, I'm playing Elden Ring, so I have an Elden Ring wallpaper on my Mac, my iPad, and my phone. <laughs> it's, it's an, I'm building a metaverse for myself, yeah, that's basically. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is kind of nice that you get couched in whatever you're engaging with in that way, right? Especially because with a screensaver, realistically, when, this, when does the screensaver appear? For me, it's usually when I work on something and I don't know what to write next or where to go next, so I lean back in my chair and after a minute, the screensaver <laughs> pops up and it reminds me of all these different theoretical approaches and inspirations that I have uh, taken from these thinkers. And it reminds me as well that sometimes it's good to look at matters from a different angle. 
if you get stuck. And this is exactly the foreshadowing for this episode because yes. I've got Ian Bogost in there who very much established the concept of procedural rhetoric, which we're going to discuss tangentially. And I've also got Miguel Sicard who argues against procedurality. <laughs> we're going to do the reading in today's main story. And just seeing these images pop up, it kind of reminds me, ah, okay, yeah, maybe I can look at it from this angle. Yes, like two uh, like two anime characters at odds with each other, <laughs> Bogost and Sicard. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go into the text, and this is quite an interesting one. But before mm. we do that, let me briefly remind you that if you like this show and if you want to help us make it happen, then you can of course become a Studying Pixels Plus member, and this has several advantages. You get all of our episodes entirely ad free. You get a lovely sticker that says, I am studying pixels and has our cute mascot pixel coon on it. And you get monthly plus episodes. Sometimes these plus episodes are ones that actually help you study. Just as in this month, where we did a plus episode on what makes a good research question. So if you ever struggled with coming up with a good research question, and just from my own experience, Roughly 80% of students struggle with that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm part of the 80%. Yes, yeah, so I can I can attest to that. <laughs> me too. Me too. Yeah. I was I was part of that as well, and I still am. It never gets, like, easy. Right. Just easier. <laughs> yes, it, it can get a little bit easier, and you can avoid some crucial pitfalls, and we can help you in doing that. Uh, you just need to head to studyingpixels.com slash plus where you can find out more. 
this certain part of it seems a little narrow or it seems a little constrictive. And then without fail, Stefan, the next reading we do will be, hey, that thing that you read last week, it's a little narrow and a little constrictive. I'm here to talk about why it's a little bit different from that, actually. <laughs> and this is one such example. Yeah, that's more true of this one than it has probably ever been before because... <laughs> Today, we actually have the situation that we look at a text that directly argues against the text. It's literally in the title mm. that we discussed last time. Because in our last reading episode, we talked about Ian Bogost's The Rhetoric of Video Games. Ian Bogost, I mentioned Bogost already, who claims that aside from, you know, narrative and aesthetics and so on, video games make arguments and persuade players primarily by virtue of their gameplay and their rule structures. That's what Bogost calls procedural rhetoric. And this idea, this is always the important thing to acknowledge. Any such idea, it just, it doesn't usually just stand there and just waste away, but it gets <laughs> picked up by other scholars who then critically examine and discuss it. And today we read Miguel Sicard's Against Procedurality, which is exactly such an engagement. Just briefly, Miguel Sicard, he's Associate Professor at the Center for Computer Game Research at IT University Copenhagen, and he published a couple of particularly influential books, such as The Ethics of Computer Games in 2009 and Beyond Choices, The Design of Ethical Gameplay in 2013. I know Sicard quite a bit because I used the works of Sicard and his theoretical framework in my master's thesis back then, I think that was in 2016, 2017, I wrote about choices, moral choices in video games. And Miguel Sicard is just the scholar to go to in the domain of game studies when thinking about that. Very, I would say, enlightening stuff about moral choices in video games. Because I think there's the joke in video game discourse that uh, take Fallout 3, for example. You either uh, blow up an entire apartment building or you don't, and that's your moral choice. And Sicard comes in and says, well, let's, let's dissect that a little bit. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Isn't that quite simplistic? <laughs> he actually does, and we're going to get into that in just a moment. His mm. key argument, I would say, uh, let me know whether you agree or not, of the text against procedurality, which we're going to discuss now, is that proceduralism ignores the presence of the player. That's how I would phrase it. I 100% agree. I think that's that's what he's very strongly asserting in this uh, in this reading. Okay, then we can go through it in three sections. I split it according to the structure of the text. The first section is going to be Sicard's understanding of procedurality, because don't worry, we're not just going to talk about procedurality without explaining what exactly Sicard un at least understands as procedurality. Section two is instrumental play, and section three is ethics and the presence of the player. Starting off with section one, we already discussed procedurality at length. We've done a reading episode on it, and if you haven't heard it yet, we'll link it in the show notes so that you can... I, th I don't think... It's not a prerequisite to have heard it for this one, but if you are curious about it, you can go back when you're done with this episode. Yes, it would, be, it would make for a good studying Pixels double feature. That's I think sure. so. I think yeah. so. We should have maybe conceptualized it as such to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
we're doing it in real time. So in real time. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you can see, you can see our own thinking evolve here because yeah, it's true. Dan and me, we have not off, we have not discussed the text off air or something. We're really just uh, engaging with it right now. Before we get too into it, one of the things that I would, I, I think is pertinent to bring up is that usually when we do these reading circles, Stefan, these are, uh, classic readings that you've kind of curated and brought to us. And this one is one that you haven't engaged with previously. So this is really, we're, we're kind of going through our thoughts at the same time, which is exciting. This is the first time we've been doing it. Yeah, maybe that's worth a shout out. I, I was aware of the existence of this text, but not that much of its significance. It was only brought to my attention by a student in my class who wrote a term paper and brought up this particular article. And after reading that student summary, I'm not going to say the name, but hey, thank you very much by extension. Uh, I looked into it a little bit more and I thought this would be a really interesting read. Yeah. Sicard, he relates the idea of procedurality to the field of ludology. So we have to have a little bit of understanding here of the fact that in game studies at the time, this was, I think, 2011, if I recall correctly, that, that article. Mm. And at the time, there was still quite a divisive approach within game studies. So games first needed to be understood and described as their own object, as something that's worthy of study. And that is not only or exclusively to be understood by applying other theoretical perspectives of literature studies, sorry, literary studies or film studies. So he says, quote, what proceduralism and ludology argued was that computer games present a technological and cultural exception that deserves to be analyzed through the ontological particularities that make computer games unique, in this case, the fact that they have a procedural nature, end quote. So in layman's terms, if a film is criticized by way of its shot composition, if a book is criticized by way of its uh, literary devices or theming, then the thing that makes a game different from other forms of media is this proceduralism. Exactly. What makes a game different? Why can't we just say we read a game like a book and then we understand everything about it? This is still often a problem when, for example, there are interpretations of games based solely on Steam descriptions, where you think, <laughs> well, you, you analyze the Steam description there, that's a paratext, but not the actual game, you know? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so why can't we just look at games as stories or at games as a form of visual art or whatever, or games as text? Well, because they are procedural. Mm. And Sicard adds to that, quote, Proceduralists claim that players, by reconstructing the meaning embedded in the rules, are persuaded by virtue of the game's procedural nature. End quote. So, video games make arguments and articulate some form of position embedded in its rule system. This goes back to the idea of the rhetoric used in video games too, right? Is that Sicard is saying that if we stick to proceduralism, then there's some kind of design, a game design, I suppose, literally, but there's some kind of design from the creator that they are expecting the player to follow. And, and he has some contention with that as the sole understanding of video games. Exactly. Yeah. 
His understanding of proceduralism is that it strongly emphasizes the rule system. and mm. the, Because the rule system are really, he says, what proceduralism contends creates the meaning of a game. So story, aesthetics, the player as such is kind of insignificant in comparison to the rules. The rules are what creates the game. And that is a very interesting observation because at the time when we think of authors that we have discussed, such as Ian Bogost, but also authors that we might discuss in the future, such as Jesper Yule, he came up a couple of times, but uh, we haven't done a reading of his work yet. Often these people at the, I would say, onset of actually contemporary game studies, they were often also game designers. Ian Bogost, for example, made his own video games as well. Uh, Jesper Yule also. Like, not in a sense, not commercial games, not like super successful AAA productions. They were not like big in the industry. They made their own games. They made often political games. What, what we would term now as, or coin now as, serious games. Yeah, yeah, serious games with that rhetorical point. Like, when you walk yeah. away from it, you say, I think that game was made to make me think about X. Yes. It was yeah. probably made to comment on that specifically. And of course, if you have, that's what I can really, where I'm completely following Sicard's analysis here. If you come from a designer's perspective, if you are someone who designs these rule systems and you enter into video game scholarship, then I could totally imagine that you have a certain bias to prioritize the significance of these rule systems, right? When it comes to the meaning of a game. I'm struck by when I was in film school for about three seconds, um, uh, <laughs> one of, my advisor said, uh, you can either be a creator or in, in the realm of film studies, you can either be a creator, you can make films, or you can be a critic. Very rarely can you be both because it bleeds into each other so very, very much. And I think that Sicart would contend that, okay, well, Bogost, yes, I understand where you're coming from, but you also made games that are very, <laughs> very procedurally minded and very much coming away with this rhetorical point that you've made. So, of course, you would think that that is the way games are distinct from other media. I mean, I don't want to disagree with your film uh, lecture, your film studies <laughs> yes, lecture, I, <laughs> but I must I should say, say <laughs> I don't know if I subscribe to that exactly. That was his opinion, but I, I, <laughs> I must say that it's the thing. The thing is with early film studies. They emerged from people who made films, like Eisenstein, for example. What, mm -hmm. what Kuleshov? Yeah, for for us, it was always called like uh, the silent film Russians. <laughs> oh yes, yes, yes. People who uh, really, I, I I mean, honestly, made cinema what it is. Right? Those those people who they they were critics. They were very critical of their own work, and they were uh, analysts in the way that Bogost is an analyst of video games. So. Yeah, I, I don't know yeah. that I 100% agree with it, but I do see where they're coming from, where you have to kind of step outside of it a little bit to see that there's other interpretations. Surely, yeah. I, I think it's just an organic kind of development that if you imagine you are in the late 20th century, <laughs> sorry, excuse me, late 19th century, actually, maybe early 20th century, so around the 1900s, and you make a film and you come up with some ideas for doing montage, and then you realize, like, oh, wait, this can have this or that effect. 
maybe I'll write a journal article about that, you know, <laughs> and suddenly, and suddenly it kind of forms into this, uh, into this field of film studies. And in a similar way, it worked with contemporary video game studies. But the problem is, yeah, as you said, that's where I would agree. It maintains a strong focus on the production perspective, on the designer perspective, and on the perspective of rules and mechanics. Sicard hmm. funnily points out that many of these games that are made specifically to employ procedural rhetoric are abstract and they often come with a an author's statement like an explanation of what this game is supposed to mean and says that this is it's basically it's highly prescriptive and ignorant of the role of the players to say like here's a game its meaning is contained in the rule system, but I'm going to tell you exactly what it's supposed to mean. And he says, quote, If rules contain the meaning, what is the need for an author statement? End quote. That's such a great quote. What, why are you... <laughs> the, the game is the statement at that point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm struck by uh, Bogost's one of his favorite examples is Bioshock. And we talked about that when we were going over his work. And it, it I, I felt kind of reading this that as much fun and as much as I love Bioshock for the point that it makes about player engagement, I did kind of feel like, okay, well, I'm, I'm being funneled into this very particular realization. And as powerful as that realization is, I do wonder if, Okay, well, that is the author statement at the end of the game, <laughs> so it's it's hard to have diff different interpretations from that. Uh, that we're all just kind of puppets in these games that we play. Like, well, I don't know if I feel that way in every game I play. <laughs> ah, now I know what you mean—the twistiness mm. of Bioshock. Yes, mm, yes, yeah, you're kind of a puppet at the hands of the of the well, author or in this case, then designer, right? Who made these rule systems? Which brings us to section two. Yes instrumental play. Quote by Sicard. The assumption behind mainstream proceduralism is that the meaning of games is contained exclusively in the formal system of the game. End quote. Mm. I have some issue with that utterance. I do think that Sicard is a little bit mischaracterizing procedurality here and proceduralism. But maybe, shall we discuss that at the end, whether he mischaracterizes it, or shall we discuss it now? Because I think we have similar viewpoints on this. Um, so let's, let's, go into, let's go into instrumental play, because I think it'll be worth discussing after that. Yeah, okay. First, we give, we give you the full picture. So the idea is that if we assume this is true, if we say proceduralism means that the meaning of the game is exclusively entailed in its formal system, so its rule system, in, the, in, in its gameplay, then if players want to understand the meaning of a game, they must follow the rules. Mm. It's a very unidirectional process of communication, as you have already emphasized. It's basically, <laughs> I'm the designer, I make a system, that system is, well, meaningful, literally meaningful, and if you want to understand it, then you have to follow those rules. And then, ah, you're enlightened. Yes. <laughs> to play devil's advocate for Sicard, because I do see where he's coming from very much so in this sense, right? It does, when you have an understanding of proceduralism, 
in the way that he does, it does feel very constrictive. And it feels like you're being, you're having your hand held through a game, which for anyone who's played not even just a video game, but a board game or a card game, you don't want to be reminded of the rules by the person who set up the gaming uh, session every two seconds. You want to be able to experience it and play it. Exactly. It's this phenomenon of being restricted in a contrived rule system. That is what Sicard calls instrumental play. Mm. He adapts this term from Horkheimer and Adorno, who <laughs> yes. in the Dialectics of Enlightenment use the term of instrumental rationality. Uh, I found Sicard's exploration of it a little bit um, too superficial, I might say. And that's mm. why I just want to briefly elaborate on what instrumental rationality means. Yes. It, because I also have a strong, uh, strong affection for Horkheimer and Adorno and for the Dialectics of Enlightenment. They're also on my screensaver. <laughs> <laughs> this was exciting because this is one of the uh, few instances where my religious studies background kind of comes in because I, I love me some Horkheimer and Adorno. So it was, <laughs> it was good to see uh, their names pop up. And as soon as this was brought up, I agree. He, it is a little bit superficial, but I, I don't know if that's just because he assumes whoever is reading this has the understanding that we might but it's worth going into because it is a, it's a good concept to understand where he's coming from. Exactly. We supplement that uh, lack of precision by bringing in some own understanding of the dialectics of enlightenment. And it is way less complicated than it actually sounds. Yes, very much. <laughs> That's how it often is in the dialectics of enlightenment. So <laughs> instrumental rationality occurs when the end of a process is predetermined. So if... You are in a situation that you know what the goal, what the outcome is. And the only thing that you think about then is how to get there. Mm. So you think in a very instrumental way. What are the instruments? What are the steps that I'm going to take to achieve that goal? You don't think about, is that goal good? Does that goal make sense at all? Should we even try to strive for that goal? You just take the steps and think about the most effective steps to get from where you are to where you ought to be. Most common example is labor, just simple industrial labor, where the goal, the product that is predefined, and you just need to be as effective as possible in reaching that goal. Right. If we want to look into video games, because that's a thing that uh, Sicard only elaborates on briefly, I, but he does elaborate on that more in his books. Uh, for example, in Beyond Choices, he talks about morality systems in video games. You know these systems where you have like a classic moral meter, you've got like the good and the bad, you got the 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 I don't know, the bright and the dark, heaven and hell, these things? Yes. Yeah. Or the uh I'm playing Lego Star Wars at the moment and so ah. it's I remember in Knights of the Old Republic it was how light side are you? How dark side are you? Yes. Yes. The force. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is that with these morality systems, specifically with, a, with, with this idea of a morality meter, you often have the issue in video games, that's what Sicard says in Beyond Choices, that if you lean fully into being entirely good or fully into being entirely bad, you often get the strongest skills. Yes. Basically, it's an optimal strategy. So that means 
that there's little incentive to be half bad or half good or to be kind of like, nah, I'm going to do this here and that here. You might decide, ideally, in such a game that goes, for example, for titles like Infamous. I don't know how it is with The Old Republic, but the idea is then, I know it, with Fallout it is the case, where you are in the situation of encountering a choice and then instead of thinking about this choice actively, instead of thinking about what would be the morally right thing to do, you only think of which choice do I need to make to get the karma points up or to get that many good points in order to acquire the strongest build that I can get. It's very much that. And I think um, Knights of the Old Republic, a Bioware title, similar to Mass Effect, the morality system in Mass Effect is your good choices are considered Paragon and your bad choices are considered Renegade. And different options on your uh, communication wheel will light up depending on how far in either direction you are. And so to your point, it doesn't make sense to kind of ride the line and be a neutral character because then you're you're missing out on these options. So it is very much, even if I don't agree with this moral choice, I'm going to make it so that I can see this part of the game or I can make this particular decision later down the line. Yeah, and if you want to go to even further extreme lengths, you can factor in things like trophy, collecting trophies mm. or achievements, where you just think, okay, so... I, I need to get an achievement to be like fully renegade, for example, in Mass Effect. So to make only, uh, that's, that would be the bad choices, right? The morally bad choices, yeah. renegade. And then in order to get that trophy, so the end is determined. This is the goal. I want to get that trophy. And then I make the choices accordingly. This is instrumental play, instrumental rationality, because you don't think about these choices. You think only about how to make them most effectively in order to get to the goal. This is exactly what it means. And Sicard says, quote, However, play is much more messy than just playing for goals and achievements. External rewards only operate on the domain of instrumental play, but leave aside play as negotiation, play as appropriation, and play as expression. So, end quote. This idea of instrumental play, you could say, it suffocates any kind of any kind of deliberation, any kind of engagement, actual engagement of the player in any choice or any kind of moment of play and instead focuses solely on follow the rules and learn the meaning, basically. It's like uh, min-maxing morality. Yeah. The thing that struck me here is that in, in those examples that you just read, the play is negotiation, play is appropriation, and play is expression, I would also put forth, and I, th I think Sicart would agree with this. I haven't read his other works like you have, but I think it also gets rid of play as nuance if you're looking for a, a kind of a deep mor a moral experience where I, I always think of Fallout 3. I wrote a, a piece about it years and years ago when I was a little more vitriolic and a little less academic. And my whole argument in this piece was, I think I'm more than deciding to blow up an apartment building. <laughs> because it just drove me crazy. And I think that's a problem that um, video game players are having more and more often now where they demand more realistic expe uh, expectations or conclusions from these moral choices. And I think Sicard would say proceduralism kind of robs you of that. Yeah, to be fair, I also think that in recent years, video games have become 
more complex when it comes to presenting players with moral choices in basically saying, let's get rid of this just binary or bipolar system where we've got good and bad and you basically end up somewhere on the spectrum. Right. But instead, let's make it more complicated. Let's make it more intransparent. Or if you do it like Telltale Games approach, let's just throw a whole lot of choices at you. <laughs> like basically all the time bombard you with choices so you can't properly distinguish which ones are really important now and which ones are not. I think it's uh, this this reached peak when parody came around because I think in Saints Row 4, it opens with you're the president and someone comes up to you with a binary decision. <laughs> it's presented as a moral choice and it's like, Mr. President, we need you to make a decision right now. Either cure cancer or solve world hunger. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly the simplicity that Sicard does not approve of. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he says that play is much more closely tied to the idea of a myth. It has to be a little bit intransparent. It is not confined to reason. And this very much reminded me of Johann Huizinger's Homo Ludens. Because mm. Johann Huizinger also says in his very original engagement with games or with the concept of play as such that this is not a direct quote, but he says that because we play as human beings, we are more than just rational because play is irrational. Yes. And I think that's kind of something that echoes through this text by Miguel Sicard of saying, we are contriving play of significant qualities when we just consider it as you fulfill or follow the rules that someone else has dictated upon you. You know, don't codify my fun experience too much, I think. Yeah. One thing that I found interesting here is that he references Horkheimer and Adorno to, to bring in this kind of idea. But Horkheimer and Adorno were actually both in, its, in their dialectics of enlightenment. They very much subscribed to this unilateral communication model, as in basically the audience is programmed by the media. Right. So the idea of the instrumental rationality, I think it's perfectly fine to lend that from this, from this book, from the Dialectics of Enlightenment. However, we must say that Horkheimer and Adorno did exactly that, what Sicard himself criticizes, of course. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, I think he, he, also, he also references McLuhan, and I think this, this idea of like the, the medium being the message and everything. So there's... He's, he's definitely in contest with this idea, even while bringing it up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but, but that is also fine, right? You can of course. totally go to a theoretical context, uh, concept and take specific aspects of it and take it out of context and use it in a different one. For sure. That makes perfect sense because what Sicard is actually arguing for is, a, is something that's actually a very established stance already. Since the, I would say, since the 1970s, 1980s, in the domain of British cultural studies. Mm. The mm. British cultural studies, which are a field of cultural engagement that said, hey, uh, we are actually not, they were mainly talking about films and TV, we're not just bound to follow that film and accept its message. We can read a film against the grain. Just as an example, they would do studies, for example, where they showed a film like Die Hard in a homeless shelter and where they would observe that the homeless people would cheer and applaud as a police car exploded. 
<laughs> because for okay. them, the police were <laughs> sure. not the good guys. <laughs> right, right. It's, yeah, context matters. <laughs> context matters. And this is exactly what Sicard says when he says, quote, Games structure play facilitated by means of rules. This is not to say that rules determine play. They focus it, they frame it, but they are still subject to the very act of play. Play, again, is an act of appropriation of the game by players. The meaning of games then is played, not procedurally generated. End quote. So we need the player, we need the player and their engagement in order to construct any kind of meaning. That's exactly the point that he makes then in section three, where he says, quote, the designer in this case plays the player, end quote. We're basically reversing things if we focus so strongly on the designer and instead we ought to empower the player theoretically. We've all had experiences like that where we felt like I play, I think the game played me <laughs> at the end of it. <laughs> and he gets really passionate about that. He sure does. Uh, I was like, I made a note in our sheet here. We've got always like a, a sheet for episodes and I made a sheet in there that says, uh, a note that says, how passionate can an academic text be? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Here's the answer, quote, against procedurality, an art, shall I read it with some pathos as well? Yes, yes, <clears throat> act, okay. act, Stefan. Against procedurality, <laughs> an army of players stand and play, breaking the rules, misunderstanding the processes, appropriating the space of play and taking them somewhere else where not even the designer can reach. Oh, against proceduralism is a player who wants to play. Brava. Bravissima. <laughs> That's how passionate Sicard gets about this. Like, he even goes so far as to say, quote, players don't need the designer. They need a game, an excuse, and a frame for play, end quote. And I will say, you know, last week we, we talked about death of the author. and. There is, it is, it's different enough here, but this, uh, his work did make me think that there's an argument here for play almost necessitates death of the designer, where when he says that uh, spaces of play and taking them somewhere else where not even the designer can reach, the idea there very simply is that a designer creates a space for us to play and they give us a sandbox, but in the idea of play, we can take it beyond the sandbox and really come to a decision that the designer may not have even con conceived of. And that to me is sort of this argument for, let's take the designer out of it because what really matters is the player and the play. Yeah. I wonder though, isn't that a bit one-sided? I would say yes. <laughs> can, we, can we really abolish the designer? The thing is, if I have a fork... Go on. <laughs> let's say hypothetically someone had a fork in their kitchen drawer and this fork is clearly designed with, with a couple of rules and affordances. For example, uh, to eat. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. Put it in some tasty French fries and, and have them and enjoy. Yeah. It is not so much made to be put into a toaster, for example. Yes. I would say decidedly not. Yeah. Don't do that at home. Of course I can do that. At your peril. Freedom of play. But right. 
<laughs> what I'm trying to say is, of course I can play Super Mario. Um, let's say Super Mario, simple game, Super Mario World, 2D platformer. And I can run to the left and run against the wall of the screen for 20 minutes and I can get some kind of meaning out of that. I would never reject that. Sure. But I can't quite fathom what that would mean. I mean, you can do that, sure, and it's fine. And you, you can, of course, then get some kind of meaning out of that. But we can't really get rid of the designer, can we? No, because fundamentally in a game like that, the design is not you need to go left. It's that you need to go right and jump around and, and platform. So I do think that... Okay, so let's let's put it this way. If somebody played Super Mario World and they only ran left for 20 minutes and they said that's not a very good game or i didn't i didn't get anything out of that well you weren't really engaging with the rules in a way that the designer intended and so obviously your experience is going to be qualitatively less important than someone who played the game as it was meant to right people will have different experiences but i think there is something to be said there's no wrong way to play a game but if you want to experience the game, you have to engage with its rules quite a bit. It's interesting because I'm really of two minds, because now I just, while you were elaborating on that, I thought of another example. I thought of a, a video game review, a very fun video game review that I just read on Amazon while doing some research for our episode, I think, next week. And I, I stumbled upon a review of uh, Legend of Zelda Link to the Past, I think, where... Uh, at the beginning, I think, I'm not quite sure whether this is the right game that I'm referencing here, where the grandfather leaves the house and says, like, wait for me, wait till I return, and then leaves the room. Yes. And and you're kind of in this room, and the person who reviewed this game... <laughs> I waited. <laughs> just stayed in, stayed in that room, and it's like, this is, a, what kind of boring game is that? I'm waiting in this room. He doesn't return ever. It's like, there's nothing happening ever in this game. Turned it off after two hours of waiting in that room. You can't even do anything. You That's know? awesome. Yeah, It's awesome. <laughs> also, just as an example, I read a wonderful review about, uh, that was Darksiders at the time when in Darksiders 2 where you played Death, I think. Yes. Yeah. Of someone who only played that game always jumping into the first abyss that they possibly could, dying, I think, a thousand something times and writing a kind of philosophical contemplation in the meantime. On death, yeah. <laughs> On death. And I think... <laughs> I think this is totally worth it. I think the, such forms of subversive play are totally worth it. Yet there still also exist kind of within the rules, right? Because those are the rules of the game. It, it doesn't mean that you progress. It doesn't mean that you win the game. But it's still part of the rule system as such. It's tough, right? But I think this is why it's... I, what I do very much agree with Sicard on is that you, sh you shouldn't... You shouldn't label one aspect of a game as making it completely different from other media. Because I, I, the part of his argument that I do agree with here is that it's not accurate to say that procedurality completely separates video games from other media. Because there are other aspects. So I would say, like in the example of Darksiders 2, the rules of that game for me would be not only, yes, you are able to fall into an abyss, you can be killed by enemies, but I would say that the one of the implicit rules is the objective, where it's like the 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 rules in the sense of play being set up. Here are the things you're able to do. Here are the things you're not able to do. And here is your goal. Those are the rules of this game. And so, when when you look at it from a procedural perspective, and you're 
you're only looking at it from sort of what is the what is the the way through this game the hallway that you have to follow that can be very restrictive and so it's important to look at the cinematic cinematographic elements the music the characters the gameplay there's so many things that make a game different from other media and i think that's maybe the heart of what sicard is getting at here yes of course interactivity to use this this common term or in the more academic context procedurality is a kind of an important thing that makes video games different from films for example because you're not usually when you watch i don't know terminator 2 then you're not usually asked to intervene in some form actively <laughs> right uh, hopefully and the yeah. the thing is though that it is important to emphasize that it's not just that because games tell stories but they also tell stories differently from other media they also employ aesthetics differently if we only think of the idea of how camera is used like camera perspective editing we referenced montage earlier in this show is completely different in video games than it would be in a film or in a tv show so i think it is important to acknowledge that we can't narrow it down to just one thing and with that i do agree with sicard i think yeah what what's a little harder for me to swallow though is that i i think and disagree with me if you do stefan but i think that his reading of procedurality is that there is always a moral or ethical persuasion happening with it and or or an intent from the author right yeah and i don't know that that's strictly true because i think that there's plenty of games where there is a procedurality to them but the interpretation is still left to you at the end of it it's maybe providing you with certain themes like elden ring is of course on our minds right now I would say that there are definitely themes that from software are putting into that game, but it's still left to the player at the end of it to decide where they land on what those themes mean to them. And maybe this is just a, a facet of games becoming more nuanced and more complex as time goes on, but it just, it, it, I, I do agree with him that looking at it through that lens would be restrictive, but I don't think all games do that when they're uh, contending with procedurality. I would say not even all games. I would say that even what he calls proceduralism does not actually do that. Yeah, right. <laughs> because, because I would say that I would say that Sikhan is right in emphasizing, of yeah, it is a super restrictive idea to assume that the meaning of a game is entirely contained within its rule system. Mm. But I would like to know whoever claimed that uh it might be that i'm wrong here and i'm not saying that there might not be a position out there that argues exactly that but we read bogost just a couple of weeks ago and i still have yet to find the sentence where bogost says story aesthetics player engagement none of these things matter all you need is a rule system that's not actually true i think that in the context of theorizing procedural rhetorics the idea was more of emphasizing this putting it to the forefront because it's kind of that's the new thing that's what bogost writes about he doesn't write about aesthetics <laughs> he writes about procedurality because bogost was kind of coming in at a point where as we mentioned right this this hope for a uh <laughs> ludological <laughs> yes. view of things um 
how do we define that? Because I think up to that point, and you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of video game analysis up to that point, especially just because of how games were up until 2011, 2012, people were using the old media terms, you know, the, the aesthetics of film, the aesthetics of literature, because it wasn't really clear yet how we could distinguish games from those. So in comes Bogost saying, well, this is a pretty big, important thing. There, there's a rule system that you proceed through. And so that is an aspect that we should pay special attention to. And I agree. I think Sicard is coming in and saying, well, you shouldn't solely do that, which I agree with, but I don't think Bogost said that. <laughs> I don't think so either. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that maybe Sicard comes, he comes on too strong here with the assumption that procedurality means the rule system entirely contains the meaning of the game and players just actualize it. Yeah. But he does really have very important points and important takeaways for game studies and video game research. And two of them I noted down. One is that if we do an analysis of a video game, then we must always consider the possibility of alternative readings because we must acknowledge that People read games, play games, I should emphasize, differently depending on their context, on their moral framework, their, their political ideology, their biography, and so on and so forth. So always consider alternative readings. Don't assume, and I think this is a very important point that Sicard implicitly makes, don't assume that with any media analysis, that there's a hidden message there that you can just unearth like a treasure and hold it up and say, I know what this game means. <laughs> You're not going to come to that conclusion, except the fact that there can be several meanings that emerge in the process of play. I 100% agree. And I think for that, I'm very, I, I did enjoy this reading very much because as I said at the top, a lot of times when we do these reading circles, I'll be very invested in the particular reading that we're doing, and I'll go along with the, uh, to quote prior readings, I'll go along with the rhetoric that's being used, the persuasion. And then as we come away from it, I start having moments where I go, wait a minute, <laughs> but what about this? Or hang on, what about that? It doesn't feel like it encompasses this part, right? And so I really appreciate that Sakart came in and said, I understand what Bogus is saying, but let's be clear on these points, please. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was, that was a nice uh, follow-up, I think. And they go really well together as a back-to-back -back reading series. I think so. I think they go really well together as much as there is some saltiness in the <laughs> writing of Miguel Sicard. Like we have not necessarily quoted the most salty passages, uh, <laughs> but there are quite some in there. I do understand sometimes academic debates uh, can be a little bit salty, and sometimes that's just fun. I don't know whether they have any personal relationship with one another, whether they maybe are just like, you know, friends and go out for a drink after work. <laughs> uh, but it's totally imaginable, right? Often these things are not as, unless you're Wittgenstein, <laughs> these, things are, <laughs> <laughs> these things are not usually as, as, as tough as they actually sound at first, yeah. at first glance. And I think it reminds <laughs> us of the fact that we have to, we can easily go, go have at, an interpretation through the perspective of Bogost's procedural rhetoric, but then we can shift perspective and look at it from the more, let's say, free-flowing idea of play liberating our reading 
from the idea of instrumental rationality and consider mm. the player because there is also an entire domain of player studies where we need to consider which kind of people play video games, which people play which video games, in which contexts do they play. Super important questions. Yes, very much on the, the, British, the British cultural studies side that exactly. you had brought up earlier. Context matters. What you bring to it matters. Does matter. That is our reading of Miguel Sicard's Against Procedurality. Please let us know what you think of the text, what you think of our discussion, and what kind of potential follow-up questions you have. In case you do, then let us know, and we might address them in the next episode. And while you ponder and think about whether Sicard has a point there, we're going to go ahead and do some side questing. 
right-wing conservative political YouTube channel. But we only mentioned briefly that Hogwarts Legacy is also criticized for being anti-Semitic. Now, Falk Ebert reached out on Twitter asking our stance on the matter, so we want to do that. Happily oblige and briefly talk about the question, is Hogwarts Legacy anti-Semitic? And should we maybe shun the game for that? It's a good question. (laughs) There's a lot of... We should maybe preface this by saying, uh, as time goes on, time is not being uh, very kind to Harry Potter. There's a lot... No. (laughs) There's a lot that people are picking up on in there. Mm, There's a lot. And it's not all news, because the thing is that I first asked myself, what has Harry Potter got to do with anti-Semitism? Good question. Because... Essentially, essentially, Harry Potter is a very anti-fascist story. We mentioned this in our last episode as well. Voldemort is basically an analogy of Hitler. And mudbloods are definitely the analogy of Jews here, or an impure race that he's trying to extinguish. We know that Voldemort is the bad guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, which is good. (laughs) Which is good. Which is good. He doesn't get much sympathy, even though the actor plays him. Very charmingly so. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the goblins. Mm. That is where this conversation is focused on. The goblins who administrate the wizard bank Gringotts in the Harry Potter universe, they can be metaphorically interpreted as Jews. And when I say metaphorically, it's not a far stretch. It's not like you need to go throughout all kinds of associations. You have... Small creatures that have long hooked noses that are sly and completely obsessed with money. Yes. They play into an anti-Semitic trope that is actually hundreds of years old. This is thousands of years, potentially. This is most strongly associated with Nazi Germany, but the Nazis did not invent anti-Semitism. They picked it up. They popularized it. They gave it a strong sense of aesthetics, but they did not make it up. Right. Yeah, I think something to be clear about, right, is that these these the aesthetics that are used for the goblins do mirror anti-Semitic propaganda and um, yeah. the the kind of obviously Jewish people are not they, they are not all what we just described, right? Far, far, no. far from it. So the the point that we're making here is that it's a metaphor for the uh, <laughs> the caricature of a Jew that's used in anti-Semitic hate most of the time. Yeah. It totally plays into that trope, just like, we must mention, though, many other media narratives do. Very many. (laughs) (laughs) When thinking about this, my first association was Oliver Twist. Yeah. Because Charles Dickens has a character in Oliver Twist called Fagin. Mm -hmm. And Fagin is... uh, He's the dude who exploits the homeless kids in Oliver Twist. He forces homeless kids to work for him and then takes their money. And he has this money stash. And when I was, I was listening to Oliver Twist as an audiobook a couple of years ago, and it was like, not only is Fagin this kind of uh, extremely anti-Semitic character and that he's like, <laughs> oh, where's my money stash? Yeah, it's, you know, like hidden under a board in the living room. Yeah. He's actually referred to directly as the Jew, right. just as... The Jew, I think, I I found this in a Wikipedia article somewhere. He's referred to as the Jew 
over 250 times in the book, whereas wow. he's referred to as the old man only about like 40 to 60 times in the book. It's so he's of, primarily characterized as he is the Jew. Yes. I mean, it goes back <laughs> even further. I mean, if you want to look at like Shylock and the Merchant of Venice, which ostensibly you could read as Shakespeare's attempt to humanize Jewish people, he doesn't do a super great job with Shylock. <laughs> <laughs> Anti-Semitism is befuddlingly old. Yeah. It's no surprise, I would say, that Harry Potter um, picks up on such a trope just because of how deeply it is imbued within our culture. Unsurprising, but not good. Which leads us to the question, okay, so if we can say that the goblins in Gringotts, in Harry Potter, are an anti-Semitic trope, what about Hogwarts' legacy? We discussed the gameplay trailer last week, and some main story points have been revealed as part of this gameplay trailer that we did not address last week. Most pertinent here is that the antagonist of Hogwarts' legacy of this new game, like this is not, this is not 19th century Charles, Charles Dickens writing or Shakespeare, this is people developing a video game in 2021. Right. The main antagonist is Ranrock who is a goblin. He leads a rebellion of goblins, these exact Gringotts goblins, that have allied with the dark wizards to seek power. And of course, what the at least what we know by now is that the player then needs to defeat this kind of uprising. We always have to consider, this is all we know at this point, we don't know whether there will be any kind of twist to it, any kind of complication that maybe undermines this anti-Semitic trope, but for now it looks like that. You fight against uh, a goblin Jew, basically. Yeah, right. <laughs> Oy vey. It clearly um, leans into that. <laughs> yeah. I... Uh... I this is I have a million thoughts so maybe 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 if you want to continue I, I can <laughs> I can maybe mull it over a little bit but it should be said right that the other the other piece of this Hogwarts legacy game is that it canonically takes place I think 80 or so years prior to no even more than that I think it's the in the 1800s the 1800s right so yeah remember this is the no matter what happens in this game, the end point is that the goblins are the bankers of the wizarding world with yes. these, these tropes being very present. So that's something to keep in mind here. I think there might have been an idea there and mm -hmm. I would have, I perfectly like the idea of um, maybe talking about industrialization, maybe talking about workers' movement, maybe talking about an uprising. Sure, but you're, in this case, you're on the wrong side if you're beating down that uprising. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on the wrong side of history. Uh, I don't want to judge the game too early. And to, your, does raise... to your point, right? It, maybe there's a twist. Maybe the twist is your character comes to the realization that this is wrong. I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe, yeah. you know? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Hopefully. We don't know. We don't have the game yet, but it right. does raise the question of should we shun the game for that? Yeah. If we concluded in our last episode that we should maybe not shun it for uh, the transphobic stance of J.K. Rowling. We elaborated on that in the last episode. Maybe we should shun it for its anti-Semitic implications. I pondered this. I came to the conclusion 
No, I don't think so. I don't think we should shun it. Uh, well, that does not mean that I'm endorsing this. That does not mean that I like it or I find it in any way okay. I would say, if you make a game, I can. you can talk about Charles Dickens or Shakespeare and criticize them for being anti-Semitic. Uh, even Charles Dickens, I think, during his lifetime at a later point, kind of apologized for the character of... He did. Fagin? Yeah. Yeah, he did, and he kind of recharacterized him a little bit. But you should be aware, making a video game in our day and age, of these implications. I think that these problems, though, should not be shunned. They should be addressed. Yeah. And that is why I think when we do a review of this game, when we discuss this game, then we should factor that in and not in a positive way. So if this game, when this game comes out, then we should, I think, not just ignore its existence and pretend like it has never happened. I think we should, at least as video game critics, play it, engage with it, and then criticize it for what it is. And if it holds, it sticks to these anti-Semitic implications, then that's a criticism that it will receive and that it must deal with in some form, and that will not necessarily improve its Metacritic rating. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I, I have no disagreement with that. I think that that's the risk you run when you shun something is that you can't discuss, you can't criticize it in a meaningful way. And I think that, look, as much as I disagree with JK Rowling, and I very much do on a lot of points, um, we haven't even gotten into the conversation. We did off air once, but the fact that Harry Potter effectively becomes a, a cop and upholds all of the problems in Harry Potter's world at the end of the story, um, there's there's a lot of issues that I disagree with, but you cannot get away from the fact that Harry Potter is a massive franchise that a lot of people engage with. And if that's the case, putting these things under the rug is doing a disservice to those people. And I think that it's way more important to go into it, criticize it, take what we can from it. Because again, we don't know what the story is. Maybe there's some nuance that we're not anticipating. And that may be worth talking about. And even if that doesn't happen, this portrayal of the goblins is still something that should be in the cultural lexicon, I think, for Harry Potter discourse. Maybe it's worth reminding ourselves of the credo that Anita Sarkeesian mm. always had, which she uttered, I think, at the beginning of pretty much every episode of Feminist Frequency, when she did her analysis of sexist tropes in video games, mm. where she, I think, always prefaced this by saying... Please keep in mind, you can love a game and at the same time criticize it for issues that you have with it. Yep. You, if you, if you, if Hogwarts Legacy comes out, you might really enjoy it. It might be really fun, and you might have a wonderful experience exploring Hogwarts and making friends and creating your own wizard in whatever way you desire. From as far as we know, there will even be the option of creating a trans wizard. Mm. At the same time, it's perfectly legitimate to say, I like that, I enjoy it, I don't like its anti-Semitic implications. Absolutely. And just one more thought on the matter, because something that I haven't brought up on here, but that I have always been thinking about for years already. I think game developers, should, or at least publishers, should really have an internal board of video game analysts. Mm. Or it can be a freelancing thing. Because yeah. I think many of the problems that video games have nowadays 
is that they make points by virtue of their rule systems, mm -hmm. for example. <laughs> <laughs> they make points that they actually might not want to make. I'm not sure. I would not want to imply that the team at Avalon Studios is so profoundly anti-Semitic that that's exactly the message that they want to send. They might think themselves like, yeah, but th but that's not at all what we wanted to do. We just thought they might be cool enemies and we didn't think of this. Yeah. Now, you should think of this, you know? <laughs> you should think of this and you should have, you should ask people, people that are versed with video game analy analysis, such as the two of us, for example. Yes, <laughs> our, our DMs are open. <laughs> our DMs are open for some for some free advice. Not for us. Why do I say free? No, no, no. For some Wait, advice. Hang on a minute, Stefan. <laughs> Paid advice. <laughs> some freelance and where you can pitch your video game story to us, where you can show us your artwork and elaborate a little bit on what you're going to do in the game. And we can tell you what kind of implications <laughs> might we might be able to draw from that, what we'll, kind of issues you might want to anticipate. We'll be your hang on a minute, guys. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you might want to rethink whether yeah. the, making the Jew the enemy is really yeah, a good idea. I don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter is not going to like that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Number two. For this one, we are joined by Toby, who's part of the Studying Pixels team and sometimes comes on the show to bring an interview or, in this case, a rather obscure video game. Because, Toby, when you asked me to request a review code for a game called Kung Fu Kickball, I, I did that and we did get the key, but I thought, Kung Fu what? <laughs> I had never heard of this before. Haven't you never heard of the famous song, Everybody Was Kung Fu Kickballing? <laughs> it is, honestly, though, a relatively small game that flew under the radar of our perspective as well, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, but I think it was reviewed by a lot of different outlets out there. And um, to give a brief introduction into the game, um, Kung Fu Kickball is exactly... Um, what the title is already saying, it's about Kung Fu and Kickball and it ki kind of um, combines these two elements to a little um, especially fun game to play in co-op um, um, because the aim of the game is to kick the opponent in the butt. <laughs> to kick the opponent in the butt? Yeah, to kick the opponent in the butt with Kung Fu, but not like a, um, some kind of a combat game like more uh, model combat and so on it's more about like um, getting control over the second element the ball because there are uh, two belts placed in a 2d view this would be the goal to um, place your ball in or against it so a little bit like i imagine this to be like Kung Fu football crossover, almost a volleyball crossover. The, the first impression was, okay, this is some kind of rocket league with um, with Kung Fu, um, but it's not uh, some kind of a, a clone or just a plain copy of the game. It brings this new element with Kung Fu in it, and that makes it especially fun. So it, it, it has a, a kind of uniqueness but it is something from what you describe that is mostly fun when you play it on the couch, maybe at a party with friends. That's true. Of course, you can play it again, again, a computer, but who wants to play it? So you, you can play against an NPC. Yeah, you can play against an NPC. But for, for me, the most 
um, fun was when I was playing it with my girlfriend on the couch. And we were like, oh no, what's your, what are you doing? <laughs> Give me back that ball. <laughs> you compared it already to Rocket League, but I also have the association of some things like Overcooked. The thing is that there are so many arcade games out there that function in this or in a similar way that the big question that I have is, is this in any way significant? Is this something where you feel like, oh, I would choose this over playing, let's say, Overcooked or Nidhogg or whatever you want to play, you know, because there are just so many of these out there. I think the difference between uh, between Overcooked and Kung Fu Kickball that the focus within Overcooked is to um, to cooperate and that this kind of discussions you have on the couch is more about where did you put the tomatoes or where's the potatoes and so on. And here is it is more like, um, yeah, having having this this kung fu um, also atmosphere with with the music, um, which which kind of gets annoying when it's when you're playing it um, over the course of like I, I don't know like one hour for the purpose of a review, for example, if you were to sit down a whole evening. <laughs> yeah. Then, then it gets a little bit annoying. So it, it's kind of these games where you jump right into it. You're coming home from your from from your work, and you're sitting on the couch, and you don't feel like uh, playing another round of Death Stranding <laughs> with all these. So the Death Stranding uh, pro, not pro, the um, Death Stranding uncut version is out there, and you want to play that, <laughs> or didn't you don't want to play that? So so it's more like sitting on the couch and saying, "Hey, we watched this movie. Do you want to play a, play another round of Kung Fu Kickball for like ten minutes, and then jump right into it and jump right out of it?" What's your conclusion after playing around with it for a couple of weeks? Was it worth it? Mm. I think it's worth it, or it was worth it, because um, for, for me it's all, always this kind of situation where I'm thinking about what to play in the evening, and most of the time it's it's exactly like that that I think, okay, I don't have the time for for a big game, so of course there are a lot of other games which are not taking so much time, but of course this, this kind of, or this especially game, was for me a pretty um, nice way to spend the evening. So, of course, you can you can choose another game, but uh, for me it was nice. And also with this kind of kung fu theme, you're getting both uh, the, um, the the best of both worlds um, from kung fu and playing, <laughs> playing some kind of soccer and um, playing... As well with some someone on the couch you would like, so get some friends, play a little bit of kung fu kickball, and then um, live peaceful ever after. Okay, thank you very much for your impressions, Toby. See you next time. And that brings us to number three. What have you brought, Dan? I have brought uh, a rather uh, vexing story about Dark Souls. So. Elden Ring has, of course, been on our minds. We had our episode about it. I know you're still playing through it. Oh, yeah, and 60 hours in. Still not nearly done. Yeah, very nice, though. That's some admirable numbers. Um, the, the issue that we're talking about today, though, is something outside of Elden Ring, which is how the old From Software games are looking right now. Back in January, there was a really big 
kind of scuttlebutt, I guess you'd call it, about a problem on the Dark Souls 3 multiplayer servers, where I don't fully understand it myself, but in the Dark Souls games, there's a mechanic where not only can you play cooperatively with people, but you can invade other people's games and try to kill them in the game. And there was a problem in January, right before Elden Ring came out, where certain invaders were coming into people's games in such a way that they were infecting their system with malware. So I don't completely understand how this was happening. I don't, I don't know the technical side of it. All I know is that it was happening, and this was a big problem. So this is not confined to the game, but this affects the entire PC that you're playing on in this case. That's my understanding. Yeah, and I think it was even happening with certain PlayStations um, on like PS4s. There was some kind of corruption that was going on. Now, No, now I'm panicking. <laughs> yeah, I know. But no, I think Elden Ring is safe, I should say that. So uh, it, this isn't the first time something like this happened. There was a notorious problem in Dark Souls 1 and 2, and actually maybe 3 as well, where people would invade... And again, I don't know how they would do this, but when they would kill your character, your save data was corrupted. So there's this long history of people coming into Dark Souls games and really causing a lot of problems for not just the, the, <laughs> the game, but for your life. And From Software's solution to this was to shut down the Dark Souls 3 multiplayer servers. They have been down since then, since early January. So that's kind of the background. I'm bringing this article by Andy Chalk, published on PC Gamer, um, called Dark Souls Multiplayer Tags Disappear from Steam and Fans Are Getting Nervous. So where we are right now is that it's been a few months since Dark Souls 3 has been without multiplayer. There appear to be certain aspects of multiplayer that are still available for Dark Souls 1 and 2, but the concern is that the tag on Steam that indicates it's a Dark Souls 3 is a multiplayer game has been removed. So people are speculating that because Elden Ring is such a huge success, and this is such a huge problem in the Dark Souls 3 multiplayer servers, From Software and Bandai Namco may be saying, you know what, maybe we're going to turn multiplayer off for good. And painful. be a shame. It would be a real shame. And what this reminds me of is... Um, in a sense, Demon Souls, the original game that came out on the PS3 and the Xbox 360, or no, just the PS3, excuse me. A couple of years ago, the with Dark Souls and Bloodborne being so popular, and Demon Souls not really having a huge playership anymore, they shut down the server. So if you go on Demon Souls on PS3, you can't play online anymore because that server doesn't exist. So obviously we have the Demon Souls remake. So you can go there. But that's kind of what it reminded me of. And really what I wanted to talk about is uh, this is why I think couch co-op needs to make a huge return. Because if this is something that is possible, you're losing out on a huge fun aspect of these great games. And it would be a shame if they really went away forever. And so my hope would be that if it's the case that these do get turned off permanently, that future From Software games make an effort to make a split-screen option for people who want to play with their friend, so that even if the worst happens, you can still play this game together. 
or just maybe make it possible that you can invite people on your friend list. Yeah. Maybe not playing with randos anymore. Some extra um, security. Some extra security. That's what Nintendo does for a large part, right? Where yeah. you need to exchange codes, friend codes, in order to to play together so that you're not confronted with exactly that kind of people that you were right. talking about who do such atrocious things. Because one thing that has always bothered me in this world <laughs> is that <laughs> we talk about, when we think about morality in video games, we often think about um, what if you, you know, torture someone in, in GTA 5 or what if you play an online shooter and that's terrible or play even worse games that feature such things like, you know, sexual abuse. Mm. Isn't that terrible? Uh, we can have a conversation about that, but what is definitely terrible is going online and actually hurting other people, actually damaging the systems of other people that might contain important files, disrupting their workflows, disrupting their, well, for some people, really their lives, if they rely yes. on working daily on these computers. The computers are not just for play, they're also just really important, crucially important systems from a lot of people for their daily lives. So Absolutely. that is, I think, where the answer of whether you can commit something morally atrocious in a video game is very clear. Yes, you can if you actually don't go for hurting the avatar, but yeah. going for hurting the player. That's a completely different story. We'll talk about breaking the rules too. Um, we, we've talked many times about rule systems in games. I mean, this is so different from uh, using an exploit in a game or, you know, maybe using a, uh, invincibility frame glitch so that you get an advantage over another player. This is affecting them in the real world. And even if it's as some, even if it's something as, uh, like in the first instance of this that I mentioned, where it's just corrupting save data, <laughs> Dark Souls from soft games. I mean, you mentioned you've invested 60 hours of your life into Elden Ring if yeah. somebody were to come in and say that save file is corrupted, you'd be heartbroken. <laughs> so, they would not survive that. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever so, had a bald German come after you? <laughs> you don't want that. <laughs> watch out. Uh, so, if, <laughs> but to wrap up, I think um, it would be a real shame if this went away. And my hope is that it doesn't, of course, but even if it does, that this uh, affects how future from software games are created. Because as we discussed in our Elden Ring episode, the success of Elden Ring means more games coming out. And this is something they'll have to pay attention to. I think at the same time that there's a bit of encouragement in there because, mm. because of the success of Elden Ring, I could imagine that so from software hopes that a lot of people are after that going to go back and say like, Oh, so that's the kind of games they're making? Then yes. maybe I'm going to play through that Dark Souls series because I just can't get enough. Because honestly, people can't get enough of Elden Ring at no. the moment. Right. So I think I would be fairly optimistic that this is a temporary measure until mm. they have figured out how to completely prevent such, well, acts of aggression, I should really say. Uh, and, and that it might come back. I can hardly imagine... I mean, due to a lower play, low player base, such as in Demon Souls, when they're just seeing like, okay, it's just not financially it, worth it to keep right. on the servers. Makes more but sense. But still, Dark Souls still has a huge 
community that must be even more uh, like alive, at least when the Elden Ring hype dies down a little bit and people start to slide back into Dark Souls or over to Dark Souls for the first time. Mm. I think they're most likely going to bring it back. I'll share in your optimism because that's a really great point. Um, my Twitter has been flooded with people saying, oh, this is what this series is like. Let me go see them. So that's very yeah. nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so very much for listening. You know that if you want to support us, you can get Studying Pixels Plus. If you want to do so, then you can go to studyingpixels.com slash plus. And if you want to reach out, leave us a comment, leave us a question. As you've learned from this episode, we actually go into questions and address them on the show, sometimes even very much in depth as we did today. Hmm. Then you can go to studyingpixels.com slash contact. Thank you so very much and talk to you next week. Bye bye. See you then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.